Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we do say all glory and honor and praise be to Jesus Christ alone. And Father, in the moments that follow, I do pray that as we look at the Bible and we study your word, that deep in our hearts would well up a love and joy, a worship of Jesus. There's no one like Christ, and it's our joy to declare that and and to, I pray, believe that. There's no one like Jesus. And Lord, we thank you. We're not the only church in town who loves to proclaim the name of Jesus. And I pray for our gospel partners in the various churches of this community. This morning, we pray specifically for Pastor Keith Capizzi and the Believers of Club Zion Community Church in Cocoa Beach. Lord, thank you for Pastor Keith and his many years of faithful service and leadership as part of our community, as part of your kingdom. I pray you'd fill him with your spirit today and give him joy and gladness. May the church of Jesus Christ grow and be strengthened in Cocoa Beach through your work in Club Zion Community Church. Lord, we love you. We bless your name and pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're going to start a short series. It'll last about four weeks and take us through the month of June. And the series is entitled Church Matters. Church Matters. And we're going to be studying a few things that are practices inside of a local church like us. And we're going to look at the scriptures and see why they matter. So next week, we'll talk about baptism. We'll see what the Bible says about it and why it matters for us as followers of Jesus. We'll talk about church membership and why it matters to be a a member, a part of a local church community. We'll we'll end the series by looking at the mission of the church in the last week of June, and we'll talk about the church mission and why it matters. But for this morning, I want to look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and I, I want us to just consider the fact that the church of Jesus Christ matters. The church is not a part of of marginal Christianity. The church is a central part of Christianity. As a matter of fact, the church is not a negotiable or peripheral or dispensable part of the Christian life. So here's what my aim is this morning. My aim is that we would look at the word of God and we would leave with an ever-deepening love and commitment to the work of Jesus in and through his church. And one of the reasons why that is so important is because we're living in a time when more and more Americans are disengaging from the church. Um, I'm not much for statistics. I think you can manipulate them, but um, I I do find this to be a, a stark contrast as a statistic. From 1930 to the year 2000, so for 70 years in America, the percentage of Americans who said they were a member, a committed member of a religious community or a local church, that number stayed pretty much constant over 70 years at about 70 plus percent of Americans. But what we've seen is in the last 20 years, that number has begun to plummet. And I mean plummet quickly. That number is no longer 70%. That number is now 47%. And that includes Jews, Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, anyone who identifies as any recognizable religious community. And so the true number of Americans who are engaged in the church of Jesus Christ is significantly less 
than 47%. As a matter of fact, every single year, almost 5,000 local churches in America permanently disband. That's nearly 100 churches every week that stop being local churches. So Americans are disengaging the local church, and in a lot of ways, it's because Americans are increasingly disillusioned with the local church. And I have to tell you, I can understand some of their disillusionment. We hear over and over again about the moral failure of leaders, about corruption and scandal in various quarters of Christianity. As a matter of fact, last week I sent our church family a response to a report that focused on several leaders who have served in our particular denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. And that report that I was responding to was basically summarizing the fact that multiple leaders in our own convention over a 20-year period of time failed to follow up on allegations of sexual abuse largely because they feared it would expose the convention to financial liability. And as I read that report and I read the various accounts from victims of sexual abuse, I have to tell you, church, it made me sick to my stomach. It made me sick to think that not only has sexual abuse been a part of the experience people have had as part of a local church, oftentimes as children, but it made me sick to think that many had been ignored or had been silenced because there were a few attorneys who deemed that it wasn't worth the financial risk of getting involved. Guys, I I can understand how there would be people in this nation and even in this room who would look at the landscape of Christianity in America, who would read those kinds of reports or those types of headlines and become disillusioned. And so here we are in 2022 in the midst of a culture that is increasingly disengaged and disillusioned with the church. And here's what I am praying I am praying that you and I will simply stop and hear the words of Jesus. That Christ will speak to us in the middle of all that noise. And here's what I'm praying you'll see this morning. And this is the one thing that I'm aiming for. That you will see that in all of the mess and in all of the darkness and in all of the disengagement and disillusionment that you would see and be convinced that the church matters to Jesus. And so the church should matter to us as well. So you ready to look at the words of Jesus, church? Let's look at Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say or who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied on behalf of all the disciples. Simon Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail 
against it. This is the word of Jesus for us this morning. I've got to tell you, as I studied this passage really over the last several weeks, I realized there are a lot of details inside of these verses that we're not going to be able to approach this morning. So what I want us to do is simply focus our attention on two statements that are at the center of this exchange between Jesus and his disciples. This paragraph we just read can really be boiled down to two central statements that occur between Jesus and the disciples. The first statement is a declaration of who Jesus is. Now, we're not going to do this, but you could just look back uh, even at the last chapter leading into our text this morning. And what you'll find is that Jesus has been traveling throughout Israel. He's been proclaiming the message of God's kingdom. He's been performing miracles. And there are people everywhere who are talking about Jesus. But what you'll find is that those people are coming to wildly different conclusions about who Jesus is. You find that the crowds are amazed at him. But then you find the religious leaders are enraged at him. And then when you dig a little deeper, you find that his own disciples are often confused by who he is. And so you have amazed and enraged and confused that mark the response of the crowds to this person named Jesus. So what Jesus does is he gets the disciples aside, he pulls them all alone, and he says to them, who do people say that I am? And then Peter responds on behalf of the group, and they seem to chime in maybe at this point along with him, and they say, well, they, they believe that you're a prophet. They think you may be one of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah, or you may be uh, like Jeremiah, or, or maybe you're John the Baptist. And now just think about that for a second. I find it amazing how far people are to go in their affirmation of Jesus as a favorable person. Do you see that? The crowds were willing to say, Jesus is an amazing teacher. As a matter of fact, he's, he's a prophet. They were even willing to go to the extent of saying, we're willing to believe in reincarnation and think he just might be John the Baptist come back to life. The crowds were not denying a willingness to believe in Jesus. But they weren't believing that Jesus is who he really is. They were willing to say he's a prophet, a teacher, a miracle worker. But Jesus is more than a prophet, a teacher, and a miracle worker. And so he turns to the disciples and says, that's a good question. Who do people say that I am? It's not the most important question, though. He looks them in the eye and he says this. Who do you say that I am? And on behalf of the group, Peter speaks up again, and people say, or Peter says this statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that's an amazing statement that Peter just makes, and it's really the first time that the disciples openly declared this about Jesus. He says, you're the Christ. That word Christ, it translates the word anointed. It's a word that represents the Messiah of Israel. And if you know anything about the Bible, what you know is that the Bible actually begins with a promise. Adam and Eve sin against God. All of creation is affected as a result of their sin. And God comes to Adam and Eve and, and he, he pronounces there will be a curse that we'll have to live in as a result of our sin. But then he makes a promise in Genesis 3.15. He promises that he will send someone who will come and who will do battle against God's enemy and will undo or reverse the curse of sin. And then the rest of the Old Testament is jam 
packed with promises about that anointed promised one called the Messiah, the one who would save God's people from their sin, the one who would do battle with God's enemy on behalf of his people, the Christ, thousands of promises. As a matter of fact, as you look through the Old Testament, what you'll find is that the Bible, as it presents the history of all of this universe, places the Christ at the very center of the history of this universe. It's all about the Christ. Everything is about the Christ. And here's what we find. Jesus is the Christ. Do you know what that makes him? It makes him the most important man who's ever lived, bar none. It makes him the one and only savior. It makes him the fulfillment of all of God's promises and the one who accomplishes all of God's purposes. Jesus is the greatest man to ever live. But listen to me, friend. Jesus is not merely a man. Peter doesn't just say he's the Christ, does he? He says he's what? The son of the living God. That's a reference to Christ's deity. It means that he is God in the flesh. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the savior of God's people. He's the Christ the son of the living God. So put all of that together, okay? Put all of what that profession or statement about Jesus is. When Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, he's confessing his belief and the belief of the other disciples that Jesus is the most important person to ever live. He's God's provision to save his people from their sin. He's the one that God, he is the God who created everything and for whom everything exists. And there's no one in all of existence who is greater than Jesus. Do you hear that church? Do you believe that church? And before we move on, I just need to go back to that question because it's not just for Peter and it's not just for the first disciples. Because the most important question you will ever be asked or answered is this question. Who do you believe Jesus is? And it is not enough to have a favorable opinion of him. It's not enough to say that he is a great moral teacher. It's not enough to say that he was a miracle worker. It's not even enough to believe that he is the most influential person to ever live. The truth of the matter is that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and your only hope for salvation. As a matter of fact, before we close this morning, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper together. And that is one way that we, as the church of Jesus, confess together, like the first disciples, we confess what we believe about Jesus. That's why we'll take bread and juice. We'll say God took on flesh and blood. He became one of us. And as a man... 
Jesus went to the cross to offer his flesh and blood in our place. He died on the cross as a payment for our sin so that we could be restored to God. We are confessing with the saints throughout the ages, beginning thousands of years ago, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What about you? Are you trusting in Jesus? If you've never professed your faith in Christ, my prayer for you this morning, and I have been praying for you this morning, is that you would come to the place where God would make known to you the truth of who Jesus is. He is a prophet, and he's more than a prophet. He is a great teacher, and he's more than a great teacher. He is the Christ, the one and only Savior, and God in the flesh. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, do not leave this place without saying once and for all a confession of faith that Jesus is who he says he is, your God, your Savior, and your Lord. That's the first thing that we see, this statement, this declaration of who Jesus is. But the second statement is not a declaration of who Jesus is. It's a declaration of what Jesus will do. Look at verse 18 again. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, now here's the phrase, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see it right there? Jesus says, I will build my church. Now here's what you need to know about this. This is the first time in the New Testament that the word church is actually used. And the word church translates a Greek word, ekklesia. Now, that word may not be familiar to us, but it would have been very familiar to the disciples of Jesus because that was a word that was used to describe a group of people that had been called out to assemble, like a town hall type of meeting. Jesus uses that word to say what he'll do. He's going to build an assembly of people who've been called out of this world for a very specific purpose. That's what the church is. It's an assembly of people called out by Jesus who've answered the call of Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And I want you to know that the, the Bible actually ends with a glimpse of what that assembly is going to look like. Listen as I read Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 of Revelation 7, the last book of the Bible says this, After this I looked, and behold, now look at this and think of it, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who is a reference to Jesus. Do you know what that is? You know what that is? That's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the assembly Christ has committed to build It's from every time frame and nation and people and language on the earth. It's an assembly, guys, that will one day gather around the throne of God, enjoying him and glorifying him and worshiping him forever. I love the picture of the church universal assembled around the throne of God. And I pray that it thrills you to think that if you pass from this life before Jesus comes again... John was seeing you around the throne of heaven 2,000 years ago. He saw the church triumphant assembled before Christ and God the Father. But here's what I I want you to know. 
As much as that centerpiece of Christ's work in building the church is a picture that we see at the end of all time, when you go through the New Testament, you're going to hear the word or read or see the word church being used all the time, but it's describing something that's a little bit different than the assembly of people who are around the throne of God. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of time when you go through the New Testament, what you find is that the church is, is used to describe an assembly of people not gathered in heaven, but an assembly of people who are gathered in places here on earth. Places like Merritt Island, we call them local churches. Churches gathered or assembled in a location like us, First Baptist Church, Merritt Island. And what you'll notice as you go through the Bible is that the entire backdrop for the New Testament is the work of Jesus in local churches like us. If you just go through a casual reading, you'll find that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the books that record Jesus laying the foundation and training the leaders who would plant those early churches that are going to thrive in the first century. The book of Acts is the history of how those churches were planted as the apostles traveled throughout the Roman Empire and planted churches in every region. In the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, you find each one is a letter either to a local congregation or to the leaders of a local church. And then the book of Revelation is actually a message that Jesus sends to seven specific churches that were located in Asia. So from beginning to end, the entire New Testament has as its backdrop the local church of Jesus. All the while, Jesus has said, and what I'm doing is building the church of Jesus that will gather in heaven. So why those two uses of the word church? Why is that so central? Well, here's why, guys. Because the local church, the work of Jesus in a local church like this is the way in which Jesus is building his church that will assemble in heaven. As a matter of fact, it's through the work of Jesus in a church assembled here on earth, a local church family that Christ is expanding and building and empowering his work of accomplishing that great mission in Matthew 16, 18. Guys, there is no separating the work of Jesus to build his heavenly church from the work of Jesus in and through earthly churches like us. So here's what I want us to do with all of that in mind. I want us to put those two central statements together there's two central statements in our text about who Jesus is and what Jesus will do. Here's what we see in that text. Jesus is the greatest person in all of existence, and he, as the greatest person who's ever lived, as the most important person who's ever lived, he has committed his life to building the church. It's what Jesus is doing all over the world and throughout time, including here and now. It's the focus of his work here on earth, and it is what will occupy heaven forever. You know what that means? It means the church matters to Jesus, so the church should matter to us as well. As a matter of fact, that's our big idea for today. The church matters to Jesus, so the church should matter to us as well. And before I show you a few things that Jesus says to encourage the hearts of people who join him and align their lives with his work of building the church, I, I want to just ask you a question that I would pray you would answer, not by your own answer, but by God stirring you with clarity. So don't say this out loud, but let me ask you this. Does your life 
reflect the heart of Jesus for his church? Does the church matter to you? In a culture that's increasingly disengaged and disillusioned with the church of Jesus, are you growing more and more passionately committed to the work of Jesus in his church? Let me ask you, would your children, would your grandchildren, would your friends, would your coworkers say that you love the church of Jesus Christ? Church, may it never be that our love for fishing and our love for golf and our love for having our kids in youth sports leagues or our desire to travel and see the world would replace the love we're called to have for Jesus and his church. The church matters to Jesus, so the church should matter to us as well. And so this month, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what it is to be a part of a local church of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who say, I want my life to be a part of Christ's work building the church, I just want to show you three quick and crucial truths that are, are, I pray, intended to thrill the heart of anyone who's committed to what Jesus is doing in the local church. So let me show you those, and then we'll partake in the Lord's Supper. First, you need to see this. The church is built on Jesus. If you're going to be a part of Christ's work in building the church, you need to know this. The church is built on Jesus. Look again at verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, what does it mean when Jesus tells Peter he's going to build his church on this rock? What is this rock? Well, that's been at the heart of controversy for about 2,000 years in Christianity. So you want to get involved in some controversy this morning? Sure, why not? There are three main interpretations, and I'm just going to walk through them really quickly, of what Jesus means when he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. The first interpretation is held by the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church says that in this setting, what Jesus was doing was elevating Peter as the first pope over the church. He was putting Peter in a position of authority that was just under Jesus. In other words, as the first pope, Peter had the authority and the ability to operate as Christ's single representative on this earth. And the Roman Catholic Church then teaches that Peter passed that authority on to all of his successors, all of the other popes, that the pope today has the authority to determine what is right and wrong for the church of Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on about this, but let me just be frank with you. I find no biblical evidence whatsoever that says that Peter is the first of a long line of popes that have the authority of Jesus on this earth. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 2, you find that Peter was was living in a wrong way. He was, he was living hypocritically. He was, being, he was being exclusive of Gentiles in the church. And Paul goes straight to Peter, confronts him to his face, and holds him accountable. And he doesn't kiss his hand or comment on his funny hat. I don't see there being any biblical warrant to believe that this is establishing a succession of popes here on earth in authority over Jesus. So I think we can set that view aside. The second view holds that when Jesus says on this rock, what he was doing was establishing Peter and the other disciples as apostles or, or as men who would serve to build a foundation or be a foundation for the church. And primarily people who hold this view really explain it this way, that the apostles 
who, along with Peter, confessed or professed the truth of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, those men proclaimed that message in the message of the apostles, which ultimately became the New Testament in our Bibles, that that became the foundation upon which the church of Jesus is built. And I've got to tell you, I think there's some plausibility in that viewpoint. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that God's household is built on the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. But there's one more interpretation, and it's the one that I truly believe is, is most accurate. It's that the rock is Jesus, or the truth about who Jesus is. Is. The reason I believe that is because Jesus is using a play on words here in this verse. The name Peter translates the Greek word petros. That means small stone. So my kids and I, when we were in uh, uh, North Carolina, went to Emily's favorite spot in the world, this little section of the river in North Carolina. And we go there because there are these great skipping stones that you can use to skip across the river. And if you've been here for the last several years, you know that every year we go, uh, we pretty much get on an adventure that we don't arrive safely back from. It's just an amazing place, but it's hard to get to and even harder to arrive from. This year, it was uneventful, and the Lord blessed us. But we went to that spot, and we were all looking for stones, and there's a specific size stone that you can use for skipping stones across the river. And and that word stone that's used here to describe Peter is talking about that size stone, a little rock, a rock that's small. Now, you wouldn't want to build a house on those rocks, They're good for for skipping stones. They're not good for building houses upon. There's another word that describes the kind of rock you'd want to build a house on, and it's the second word that Jesus uses. It's the word petra. The word petra is a word that means bedrock or mountain or a giant boulder. And that's what Jesus says. He says, there's a giant boulder that I'm going to build my church on. There's a mountain that I'll build my church on. He's, he's playing on words here saying, Peter, you're, you're a small stone. You've just recognized the truth of who I am. I'm Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the living God. And that truth of who I am is like a mountain, Peter. You're just a small stone in comparison to me. I'm a mountain. I'm a bedrock. And that mountainous truth of who I am is what I will build my church upon. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ is built on Jesus, only Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 3.11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. Let me tell you this, church, and we need to always be clear about this. There is only one true foundation for the church of Jesus Christ, and it's Jesus and the unashamed, bold declaration of who Jesus is. That's why our only message is, is Jesus. Whether it's at vacation Bible school in a couple weeks or every time we gather on a Sunday morning like this or when we scatter in this community, there's one name on our lips. There's one message for our lives. And it isn't seven ways to be a better father or nine ways to engage in the political process. Do you know what our message is? It's Jesus, only Jesus. The church is built on Jesus Christ. And that couples then with the next 
verse of Scripture, the next truth, not only is the church built on Jesus, the church is built by Jesus. Look again at verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, the small stone, and on this rock, the mountain of truth of who I am, I will build my church. Guys, only Jesus can build the church of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means pastors like me, preachers, don't build the church of Jesus. It means people like you engaged in programs don't build the church of Jesus. It means self-help and psychology won't build the church of Jesus. It means marketing schemes and business models don't build the church of Jesus. Jesus builds the church of Jesus. So we depend on Jesus and not those other things to do what only Jesus can do. And let me give you a really practical application of that truth. Here's what that means. If only Jesus can build the church, and we actually believe that it takes Jesus to make the church grow, then we should seek the face of Jesus in prayer. What if your child had a life-threatening condition and I told you there's only one person in the entire world who can successfully perform the procedure that will save your child's life? What would you do next? Well, it would depend on what you believed. If you cared enough for your child and you believed what I said, you'd seek the face of that physician. But if you didn't care for your child, you wouldn't seek his face. And if you didn't believe me, you wouldn't seek his face. But if you did believe me, and if you did care for your child, then you would go to that doctor and you would ask him. You may beg him. You would plead for him or her to save your child. And church, I cannot help but wonder if that partially explains the phenomenon we're seeing in the American church these last 20 years. That the decline in the American church and the prayerlessness of the American church have gone hand in hand. I can't help but wonder what would happen if the church in America, if us as the church of Jesus Christ would get off of our soapboxes and our political agendas and get on our knees before the face of Jesus and ask him to build his church in our life and in this community. What would it look like? Not that we would just gather in this place, but what would it look like if tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday, each one of us as the church of Jesus sought his face in prayer and said, Jesus, build your church and use me. Guys, that's what who's your one is about. It's about praying that the Lord would use you to build his church by revealing through his spirit the truth of who Jesus is through your witness That who's your one would be an example of how you're living alongside the agenda of Jesus to build his church in this community. Church, we are not going to build Christ's church by adopting business models from Fortune 500 companies or reading the latest manual in church growth mania. The only way that we will see the church of Jesus Christ built is by looking to Jesus because only Jesus builds his church. The church of Jesus is built by Jesus and on Jesus. The last thing I want to show you is this. The church will be victorious through Jesus. Verse 18, look what it says. I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And notice this phrase. He says with certainty, I will build my church. And then he, he, he goes even further by saying, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I love that phrase. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, scholars are divided about what Jesus means specifically when he's referring to the gates of hell. You see, in the ancient world, gates were a symbol of strength. 
So, so the strength of a city or a fortress was often symbolized by the gates of the city. And the word hell there in verse 18 is a reference to the place of the dead. So at the very least, what Jesus is saying is that death itself isn't strong enough to stop his work of building the church. You know what proof he offered us? When he rose from the dead. And when he promised to raise anyone who would trust in him. Because hell holds no threat for people who aren't afraid to die. The promise is that Jesus will raise us up. We have nothing to fear in life or death as the church of Jesus Christ. The strength of death is not strong enough to stop the work of Christ in his church. But even more, hell is a reference to the domain of Satan and his armies. What Jesus is saying here is that even though Satan will attack the church of Jesus, the power of hell is no match for the power of Jesus poured out on his church. The power of hell will not prevail against the work of Jesus in his church. Do you hear that, church? I pray that encourages you today. Because don't you see that the power of hell is being poured out against the church of Jesus? I know it seems like the powers of darkness are prevailing in our world today. I know it seems like the decline of the American church is a victory for the enemy. I know that it seems like the church is marked by failure and scandal and that's a victory for the enemy. I know it seems like the assault on truth and righteousness is winning the battle for the hearts and minds of our children. I know what it seems like, but church, things aren't always as they seem. The church of Jesus is a cause that cannot fail. Why? Because Jesus has already defeated the powers of hell itself Our enemy is a defeated foe. He has already been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. And you need to hear this, church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the work of Jesus. He is victorious and we will stand with victory with him in the end. So if you want your life to matter, here's what that means. If you want your one and only life to matter, to count in eternity and be eternally significant, then I'm not calling you to build the church. That's where a lot of us might go. I'm calling you to look to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to step with Jesus as he steps in you and join him by his power in what he's doing in the world today. If you desire for your life to matter, then lay your life before your king whose name is Jesus and join him in the work of building his church. And in the weeks that follow, we'll talk more about what it is to be a part of the church. But as we prepare this morning for the Lord's Supper, I just want to double back around and I want us to revisit that first question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because the declaration of the church, the foundation of the church, is the truth that Jesus Christ is our God. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And he came to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's what we desire to show in the Lord's Supper.
So if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to just lay those elements aside and don't partake in them. This is a time for those who say, here's my profession of faith in Jesus to confess out loud that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's my personal Lord. He's our Savior. And his is a work that cannot fail, a work he's doing in me. Would you bow your heads in prayer as we meditate over the Lord's Supper this morning. And as you hold those elements in your hand, answer this question, not out loud, but to the Lord, who do you say Jesus is? Is he your God and King? Is he your Lord and your Savior? Is your participation in the Lord's Supper an expression of your faith and confession in Jesus? And if so, are you confident that Christ's work of building his church includes the work he's doing of saving you? Is that what you're declaring, that Christ in you will be victorious when all is said and done? Father, we hold these elements in our hand and it's our desire to declare the truth of who Jesus is. So Father, give us, I pray, hearts filled with faith and we know that we don't come to the place of believing Jesus because flesh and blood makes it known. We we don't come to the place of placing faith in Jesus because preachers like me declare the truth so well. It has nothing to do with our ability, Father. It has everything to do with your power. And we pray that right now you'd be revealing to us over again the truth of who Jesus is and filling us with faith. Be exalted as we partake in the Lord's Supper and declare, profess the truth of who Jesus is. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, if you would, go ahead and peel back that first layer. Take that bread in your hand and remember this symbolizes the flesh of Jesus, that God became a man. He took on a body just like yours. He experienced your pain, your weakness, and took your suffering for sin at his cross. That in his body, Jesus suffered in your place so you would never have to suffer for your sin. His body was broken for you. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, I pray that you'll give thanks that Christ was condemned for sin so you would never be condemned for sin. Would you bow your heads and just give thanks for the body of Christ? Lord, we believe that Jesus, the Son of God living for all eternity, the one who created the heavens and the earth and for whom they all exist, that that same Jesus, the Son of God, became a man And that as a man, he lived among us. And unlike us, he lived a perfect life in his body, completely obeying you in every way, thought, word, and deed. And God, we thank you that in that same body, Jesus went to the cross, that he was punished and suffered in our place, that he was broken for our sin so that we would never have to be. So God, we thank you for the life for the suffering, 
for the sacrifice and death of Jesus on this earth. And we take this bread with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take that bread? And then please peel back the next layer. The juice represents the blood of Christ. There was blood flowing through those veins. And blood was spilled out, was shed as a sacrifice for our sins. And that in the shedding of Christ's blood for us, we can receive forgiveness. Because like a sacrifice before the Father, Jesus was offered as a sacrifice for our sin. That means that we are fully forgiven and God is completely pleased when we have been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So while your life has had sin, and some of you come into the room and you can't forget or feel like you're able to get past the sin of your own life, here's what you need to know. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are forgiven of all sin. You are cleansed from all unrighteousness and you are completely loved and accepted forever by God because of Jesus. So would you bow your heads and give thanks for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all our sin. Father, we thank you for Jesus that he shed his blood as a sacrifice on the cross. And though our sin is great, our Savior is greater and his grace and mercy are more than anything we could ever need. And so, Lord, we praise you for the forgiveness that is ours by the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we take this juice with thanksgiving, celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, and saying that our hope and confidence is not in our own work, but in the work of Christ for us. We pray all of these things with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take the cup with me?